As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Hey everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Grown Up Stuff. Grown Up Stuff. Welcome to another episode of Strictly Business, the podcast in which we speak with some of the brightest minds working in media today. I'm Andrew Wallenstein with Variety. The TV mega-hit The Walking Dead ends its historic run this Sunday on AMC, but that's far from the last you'll hear from this franchise. So says David Alpert, the CEO of Skybound Entertainment, the company that created this zombie sensation. But there's a lot more to Skybound, as I've learned interviewing David last week at the Future of TV conference. Stay tuned after the break for this really interesting conversation. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Hey, everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Here's a clip from an upcoming episode featuring the weekly home checks, Keyshawn Lane, that you won't want to miss. 
also a common mistake that a lot of people do. They use fabric softener when it's not so great for your clothes. Should we never be using fabric softener? No, you should not ever be using fabric softener. It leaves a deposit on our clothes, which is also left in the machine. And it also makes the clothes highly flammable. Wait, what? (laughs) Yes. What you want to do instead is just use a quarter cup of vinegar. And that'll make them softer? That'll make them softer. And if you wanted some kind of scent, you can use essential oils. Wow, wow, wow. Catch new episodes of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult every other Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Grown Up Stuff. And we're back with Skybound Entertainment CEO David Alpert. Well, good to talk to you, David. I, it's interesting to have this conversation at a time where the sort of marquee show for Skybound, a little little show called The Walking Dead, is uh, ending its run. Although to say it's ending also feels weird, given that the franchise, broader than just that show, uh, has such a long future ahead of it. So I, I wanted to start with like. Could you possibly have imagined when that show first launched, what was this, 20 years ago, 20 seasons ago, that it would be everything that it became? Uh, so the the, sh- the comic launched 20 years ago. We're coming up on the 20th Got anniversary it. next year. This is the uh, 11th season. Uh, short answer is no. I mean, I knew, I knew the comic was special. I knew the story that we had uh, was special. I knew that there's a great opportunity, like a white space that nobody had done serialized horror. And I knew that that was something that was very much in demand. So I felt like we had a great window, but it, it, I, there's no way that I could have known that at that time we were going to go for uh, 12 years, you know, multiple spinoffs, you know, billions of dollars of merchandise and video games. Out. No, I had no idea that it was going to be this big. So after 12 seasons, what do you attribute the outsized success of The Walking Dead. What, what, what do you think about it resonated so well? Well, you know, I, I always look at sort of the product market fit, right, in general. And I feel like, one, there was no serialized horror. And I feel like that's, you know, now it's really hard to imagine that because just how much horror is on television. But just thinking back to that landscape, no one had really done, under, you know, there had been, you know, episodic horror, anthological horror, nothing that had come on that had been like, hey, we're going to treat this really seriously and, and sort of do that. So I think that was a major aspect of it. I think separately, you know, um, I think we got lucky and hit the zeitgeist in, in a real way. I think, you know, people, the digital world had really sort of started to transform people's lives. Um, and uh, Chuck Klosterman had written a, uh, an op-ed, I want to say, like right after the show came out about like why he thought zombies were, um, resonating with people. And part of it, he, he said, was attributable to email, the notion that the more that you sort of whack them down, the more they come back at you. And I, I did think there was something existential that we tapped into the notion that um, our work lives uh, were sort of uh, attacking us and getting us in all the different areas and hours that used to be safe and off limits from work. So I, th- I think there was something there um, that we sort of tapped into in the zeitgeist as well. So it was sort of right time, right place, uh, combined with sort of a, a lucky break. That's an interesting theory. I would add to it that, and I, I think this also spoke to why Lost was such a big hit. I think there's something about a show where 
you see a society that has to sort of peel away from modern technology and go back to this sort of primitive, use your hands to, to fight and survive kind of thing. I mean, do you think that might be also a, a theory? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I think people love those stories, right? Like, you know, I grew up um, uh, reading books like Hatchet and the K and Lord of the Flies, right? Those were sort of like, you know, nature of humanity questions like what happens when you take away all of our creature comforts and you put us there right and i think you know some of us like to think we would do well and i think it's it really poses those questions like how would you uh react in those situations and um i think it was you know i think i think we got lucky with with that as well but yes i think people love seeing the sort of um stripping people away back to back to everything and then on top of it i feel like there was we also really got we really sort of leaned into the soap opera angle, right? And sort of, you know, if, if I pitch you this, this story, as opposed to something about zombies, where I said, hey, uh, a guy wakes up from, his, uh, from a coma to find that his best friend has taken up with his wife and his wife is pregnant and he's not sure if, if the baby is his or his best friend's, right? That sounds like a daytime soap from when I was growing up, um, but you add zombies and that becomes The Walking Dead. Yeah. I mean, I think there's that formula of sort of the back to basics. I think that's worked for everything going back to Survivor to I think you look at a show like Yellow Jackets on Showtime today that has a bit of that flavor. But I also want to talk about, again, this is so much more than just a show. It is a franchise. You've got other versions on the air. You've got so many different executions and other media. So can you give us sort of a the full scope of when we call it a franchise, everything that's going on right now for The Walking Dead? Sure. I mean, first and foremost, uh, The Walking Dead is a comic. It's the, uh, the best-selling independent comic, black and white independent comic of all time. Um, came out in 2003. And, you know, everything really for us stems and starts and ends with the comic book, right? That's sort of, that's our canon, that's our lore. Uh, anytime we have a question, everybody goes back to the comic. Um, obviously, we have uh, all the shows that are on. There's Walking Dead, Fear of the Walking Dead, Tales of the Walking Dead, um, a number of spinoffs, additional shows sort of in production now. Uh, and of course, The Talking Dead, which I also think was a huge opportunity for us to sort of um, sort of made the show successful was uh, embracing the notion of a water cooler. Don't just do a show that's a water cooler show. Make a water cooler show about the show that's a water cooler show, right? So it's sort of really tapped into that sort of meta uh, conversation, which I think was really helpful in making it successful. Um, outside of that, we have a number of video games, right? So we started with uh, uh, Telltale's The Walking Dead, which was a narrative-driven game, um, which is huge, right? And it's some people's favorite character uh, is Rick Grimes uh, from the comic or from the show, um, but a lot of people's favorite character is Clementine, who originated uh, in Telltale's The Walking Dead. Um, and is, you know, now we are sort of giving an additional life. Um, there's a series of, um, you know, YA graphic novels that we've launched uh, from Tilly Walden that uh, follows Clementine. So that's been really exciting to see. But the Telltale game, I can't stress enough how transformative it was, not just for us as a company, um, but even beyond that, uh, sort of revitalizing sort of the narrative gaming genre. Um, you know, up to that point, I would say the narrative gaming was sort of a bit of a backwater um, in that space. Um, but we really took the television approach where like writing is front and center. We're gonna run a writer's room um, and it's going to be about decisions and emotions. And we approach that game 
with the goal of trying to make people cry, right? Which was a, not an obvious play when you're looking at a zombie game. And that game went on to do, you know, over 100 Game of the Year awards, it's done over a billion dollars in retail. It's been a transformative moment for us to show the power of storytelling um, in the interactive format. Um, so from there, we now have 13 games out. Um, we have uh, a number of games in market now, a number of more games coming. Um, we've done everything from, uh, we did the, the Walking Red Wine, uh, we did Waking Dead Coffee, we did Walking Dead Cruises, we had Samurai Swords, Baby Onesies. I mean, you know, we pretty much span the gamut of uh, pretty much anywhere we can tell an interesting and compelling story. We were doing. And, you know, going back to that first question, I think the approach that you just laid out is also part of probably why The Walking Dead has been such a stalwart on television for so long. All these different other executions of that same IP that kind of probably has sort of a, a, a virtuous cycle to it, right? The video game sends to the TV show, the TV show sends to the video game. For sure. Although what I would say is I think, you know, there's a difference between franchises that center around a single character, which can be hugely successful. And I think it was easier for us because we had a world, right? We had a world with a set of rules that was more important than an individual character. Rick Rhymes, hugely important, you know, key figure for us in Walking Dead lore, but Rick Grimes doesn't show up in, in anything that Clementine does. And I think that idea that you can take that concept and ex extend it out, as long as you treated it with the same degree of seriousness um, that we did in, in the main show, that allowed, I think, the universe to sort of feel bigger and broader than it would have otherwise. So I feel like that was a huge benefit for us. So when you talk about a world, when you talk about a franchise, what is the long-term planning like? Because I will not blink an eye if The Walking Dead is on in some shape or form 30, 40 years from now. And so do you plan that far out? I mean, how does that work? It must be horrifically complex. You know, we have absolute concrete plans for the next five years, right? So I have uh, contracts and dates uh, that I have laid out on, on a board that I can show you that would literally show you everything that we're doing uh, for the next five years of The Walking Dead. We then have from years six through 10, we have sort of like um, goals and some early prep work that we're doing. Um, so that's been sort of a beneficial thing. And then beyond that, we really just have sort of like aspirations. So, you know, we have, you know, high level aspirations, but, uh, and sort of directions we want to take it opportunities that we'd like to do it. But our goal, our macro goal is we think that there's opportunities to be telling stories in this space, you know, for the rest of our natural lives and probably for some of our unnatural life too. And I think that's also part of the Walking Dead legacy, particularly on television, where what has now become the norm is if you have a successful show, it must become a franchise. You must figure out other iterations. Obviously, The Walking Dead wasn't the first to do that, but do you think it sort of accelerated that trend? I think so. I, I, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I think a lot of this, you know, comes from the, you know, comes from genre and from B movies and from B television, right? Like that's where we took our roots, right? You know, we'll go back and look at Star Trek, right? Why is Star Trek been able to survive for decades and decades? It had, you know, obviously Captain Kirk's an amazing character, Captain Picard's an amazing character. You have this world where you have the world of the Federation, you had all these different planets and races and species. So there's always something new to dig into and explore and different angle. And just like you said, I, I think survival and how you rebuild society when all our rules are taken away, I think it's something that we all think about, right? Like, 
um, as a parent, I'm sure uh, everybody, every parent I know has heard their kids at some point say, that's not fair, right? And they'll say, okay, well, why is it not fair? And they say, well, if I was doing it, do it like this. And I remember as a kid, I would say the same thing to my parents. That's not fair. If I was the parent, I would do it like this. Everybody wants that opportunity to start civilization from scratch. Everyone wants to be like, hey, here's how I would build the ideal society. And I think this gives you like freedom and the license to go ahead and do that, which I think is really, really powerful. And, you know, you guys have certainly gone ahead. And I, what I mean by that is when I think about the wealth of IP executions across so many media, I do wonder as well whether there is a debate or a conversation internally about putting too much out there, exhausting the IP, because we've seen some pretty big IP. I think of, you know, Disney and Star Wars as an example of too much, too soon, and you could really uh, leave the IP worse for wear. Yeah, and so what we try to do, you know, I think one of the one of the things that I think happens in these spaces is sometimes people tell the same story over and over, right? Like I go back to, you know, um, the old the old version of like, you know, you go watch the movie in the theater, then you play the video game at home. This is, this is in the 80s. And you're basically playing the same character doing the same thing. And that sort of notion of just doing the same thing and not as high resolution or high quality form, I think is the classic sort of melting ice cube approach where you're, you are getting diminishing returns. The, the goal for us is always to use whatever aspect of storytelling that we're using to open up a new frontier and explore something that we wouldn't have otherwise. So let me give you two examples, right? So one, I talk about Clementine a lot, right? Where we say, hey, look, this character, other than Glenn shows up in that Telltale game for about 30 seconds, other than that, there's not, sorry, there's a little, little buggy. Um, the outside of that, there's really no intersection with the rest of the canon that we're talking about. So it's a complete new story, complete new uh, universe to sort of really explore. Um, separately, like when we do different games, we're trying to use, whether it's an RPG, whether it's a real-time strategy game, whether it's a a, 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 a trading card game, whatever, model we're using we're trying to explore different aspects so i think part of the reason why for instance i love star wars and i grew up loving star wars and star wars was huge to me but so many of the movies were just retelling the original story over and over again and i was like it wasn't until the mandalorian where i was like oh yes this is something new this is something exciting that got me excited i was like baby yoda like i've been waiting for something like that forever like now that was powerful again that was sort of really meaningful and impactful to me and so we try to do the same thing. I don't think we always succeed, but we try to do the same thing um, in our gaming, uh, inside of our books. Always try to explore something new. Every time that you're, you're if you're just an arena rock band playing the hits, you've no longer gotten to the place where you're vibrant and alive. And despite us being The Walking Dead, we have to remain vibrant and alive if we're going to survive in this media ecosystem. And so I want to bring it back to Skybound itself, because this this is this approach essentially defines your company. You're not just looking for, oh, hey, this is going to make a good show. You're looking for and I'm using a parlance you taught me many years ago, the wheel of awesome approach. Talk about what what on earth that means and how that's become why that makes sense for Skybound. Sure. Uh so first of all, I love the fact that you remember the Wheel of Awesome because uh, it really is the secret sauce for what we do. 
so one is we we put a creator at the center of our business. We think that you know historically uh, Hollywood has been organized around taking creators' creations and then sort of stiff arming them and keeping them out of the process. And we think that that's a mistake. Um, so my business partner is Robert Kirkman. He's the creator of The Walking Dead, creator of Invincible, and so he's at the core of the business. Now he doesn't do all the properties we do, and he's involved in everything, but. When it's somebody else's property, it's that other creator that we put in the center. We were using the model that we built around him for The Walking Dead and Invincible for other creators as well. So we put him at the center, and then we basically go in every medium that they're interested in being in, right? So um, comics, film, television, video games, audio, live events, merchandising, uh, board games, video games, everywhere they want to go, we end up trying to take them there. But at the same time, if a creator's like, look, I don't see that. I don't see, I don't care what you're telling me. I don't see this ever being a board game or I don't see this ever being a comic book. Well, we, we won't do it. We sort of, we follow their will because we think that we're able to make better decisions if we're sort of very much in tune with those, those aspects. So I'd say historically, production companies are oriented around a method of distribution. They're making television to be displayed in cable or broadcast. So they're making movies to be in theaters or now in streaming, right? We're organized around building IP and connecting creators with their audience in every area and every medium that they want to be operating. And I think that's the thing that separates us out. And when we explain that to creators, they always would say to us, man, that's awesome. And we're like, yeah, that's the real awesome. But how do, I, I'm picturing someone from AMC Networks listening to what you just said, and I'm wondering whether they would think like, wait a second, you know, we're the network that puts the show on the air. Shouldn't we be the ones in control and we're giving you notes on what the show would could be? So is there any sort of tension there in terms of, you know, yes, it's nice that, you know, you want the creator to have a direct link to the audience. But on TV, it's not doesn't really work that way. Yeah, I mean, so the short answer is yes, right? Uh, there's definitely there's definitely tension, and there's tension in every creative process, right? There's tension between the writer and the director. There's tension between the director and the actors. I think the tension is uh, is necessary, um, and I think that ultimately, though, if you look at sort of our execution and market, it's hard to argue that we've done anything but be additive and value add, and value creative uh, to the brand. So um, if you want to speak at it from just a purely high level, um, when we go head to head with uh, third parties, we generally come out on top because if we're creating something, I have the creator that I'm talking to. They have a consumer products team that's organized around a, a decision-making process with hundreds of different stakeholders, and they will come out with a safer, more rounded product. But in this market, that doesn't work. Fans sniff out like uh, decisions by committee and a heartbeat. And they can, they, they'll reject something without, without even being able to tell you why. But when you dig in, it's because, oh, this feels safe and sanitized. And it's not that we're so aggressive and risk-taking, but we're authentic to the brand in a way, and not in sort of the marketing speak of what uh, authentic means, but we're really digging into sort of like, you know, I remember we were making this wine, right? And we were having a problem with, with the label. And the big thing for us is we want to make wine and we're putting wine to market. It couldn't be. And Robert challenged us that it can't just be a label slot. There has to be something authentic to it. That how do we tell a narrative with a bottle of wine? Most narratives about wine are, oh, there's terroir and the, this farmer's been here for 
you know, hundreds of years, we didn't have any of that. So what we did is we made an app where you could hold up your phone in front of the bottle, right? And a zombie would jump out. You get the second bottle and Rick would come out and fight with the zombie, right? So there was a whole little mini narrative that we were able to imbue into the idea of drinking this wine. But we were having problems. Like we were, we all looked at this label and it wasn't working. And we weren't following our own advice, right? So we were going through, we had design firms, all these people telling us what we should be doing. And it was taking forever. So I was like, Robert, can you just come in and just look at this and fix it? He's like, you know what? You have the legs all wrong. He's like, just move the leg like this and move the leg like that. And instantly, as we were testing it, the test results went up. Quantitatively, moving the legs in two seconds made the, made the sort of the score on the, on the label go up like 20 points. We were there working with like a whole team. So my, my point is that like that, that uh, consensus driven, you know, committee driven approach will fail when you have somebody who is a visionary who actually understands what is key about their creation. And the creator will always beat the committee every time. We're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more with David Alpert. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Hey everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. We're back with season two of the podcast, which means more opportunities to glow up and become a more responsible and better adult, one life lesson at a time. And let me just tell you, this show is just as much for us as it is for you. So let's figure this stuff out together. This season, we're going to talk about whether or not we're financially and emotionally ready for dog ownership. We're going to figure out the benefits of a high-yield savings account. And what exactly are the duties of being a member of the wedding party? All that, plus so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Grown Up Stuff. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, and when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. We're back with Skybound Entertainment CEO David Alpert. I certainly don't want to give the impression that Skybound is a one-trick pony, you know, with the Walking Dead franchise. You mentioned Invincible, uh, which is a animated show on Amazon, and you know, right off the bat, there's what strikes me is this contrast between the Walking Dead really launched in a different age of television than Invincible did, which is obviously smack in the middle of the streaming age. 
Is there a difference in terms of launching shows, selling shows in this newer environment? Absolutely. I mean, I think that in general, uh, the media landscape is much more cluttered, right? There's way more options. Um, when we launched, uh, when we launched, you know, uh, Walking Dead, I don't even think Amazon was doing, uh, you know, uh, Netflix was just getting into the originals business, right? Like you, it was a completely different landscape. Streaming was just a thing that was people coming on. We, but you know, you talk to young TV execs today, they don't know what basic cable is, right? They remember it as, as a thing they grew up with, but they don't think of it as a vibrant place. Whereas Walking Dead cut its teeth up in basic cable. Um, so now we have to think a little bit different. And also there's been so much more explored, right? Like you've had the rise of foreign language shows like Squid Game and Narcos and, uh, you know, all these different shows from all over the world, Fauda, um, that sort of have taken up market share. So the realm of the possible is, has been expanded, but the challenge for us was still trying to find that space. So um, we looked for one of the things that about Invincible that was interesting was nobody was doing hour-long R-rated animation, right? There's a lot of comedy that's being done, a ton of comedy. There's kids action that was being done, but there's nobody that's making hour long sort of, you know, adult themed 2D animation. And we felt like that was a real window for us to sort of go in and attack. I mean, what you're talking about is sort of one of the classic things you learn about great television, which is that often it's when you zag to everyone else's zig that you get something that resonates. But I think the flip side of that is, is it hard to sell an Amazon or an AMC on something that, you know, from that network approach, it's always about clone whatever works, clone whatever works. And that's not what you're doing. So what's the secret to selling streamers or networks on something that is not a clone? I mean, I don't know that it's that we have a specific secret, right? I think a lot of it's about trying to create a specific argument. One of the things that we had in, with... Um, with both Walking Dead and Invincible, we had these hugely successful comics that sort of pointed to uh, these fan bases, right? So we say, hey, look, we have we have some data, right? These things have been around for at this point going on twenty years. So there's there is an embedded fan base. We had done different activations previously that had all gone very very well, and then you know we were able to find some key influencers in the space on all of these different areas to sort of vet out um, the success. So for instance. You know, we had Stephen Young and Sandra Oh and Hersha Ali and Seth Rogen come on as voices early on in a way that people were like, oh, like, I didn't think a cartoon was going to be able to get that type of talent uh, onto a show like that. So it was validating from that perspective. And honestly, we've come at it from we've always been cheaper relative to the other entrants in the space. Right. So, um, you know, you look at what Amazon's doing with Lord of the Rings. I mean, you know, I would say we have multiple seasons that will cost less than one episode of that show. And I, the show is, the show, that show is great. We're trying to do something different. Um, so part of it's also like, Hey, look, we're a lower cost experiment, but we can still reach a mass audience. Um, and we will point to different things, but it's also, then we'll get like, you know, you know, getting Frank Darabont to come on to direct the pile of the walking dead was validating, uh, you know, to get someone of that caliber on the same way to get our talent on the show. Was. So that was part of the ways in which we go about trying to, you know, sort of discount some of that risk. So when you say you approach the network or the streamer with data on the audience, what, what are we talking about? Like, what was, how did you sell Amazon Invincible? What data did you bring to bear? So we're able to bring in, because we're coming from 
these other media, right? We're able to say, look, here's the number of comics we've sold, right? Here are the number of live engagements we had done. Uh, we had partnered years back with MTV and done this sort of like this motion comic of Invincible that ran on MTV that had, you know, giant, um, giant billboards in Times Square that had gotten millions and millions of downloads, right? We had done uh, collectibles and action figures. So I was able to give them sales data, and, uh, readership data, um, and exploitation data that was able to make them think, oh, okay, like, hey, there is something here. It's not like we're coming up with a completely original idea that no one's ever heard of. So able to discount it. And by the way, I love complete originals, right? Like, yeah, I love what Christopher Nolan does. Um, but getting some of those things moving in a new space in the TV, it's, it's sometimes can be really hard. I want to turn to the financing side of Skybound. You guys uh, went through a second round, I believe, in May. Uh, what is your approach there in terms of funding? What are you looking to do with that funding? Yeah, so, I mean, part of it is, you know, we're, we're one, we're moving into different areas of production, right? So for years, we, we started as a comic company that also did television. We're, we're getting to film. So we have a, our first studio movies coming out. Um, next year called Renfield with Nick Cage, uh, Nick Holt and Aquafina. Uh, we have a whole big audio department. Um, our, one of our biggest hits is called Impact Winter, uh, which was a, a top-ranked uh, original for Audible that we have second season coming out uh, and a third season production as well. So we're building out our audio capabilities. Uh, video games has been a huge growth area for us. So we're, uh, we're buying additional capacity uh, increasing our ability to sort of speak directly to fans. So we, for years, we've been licensing games. We built up um, publishing capacity. So for instance, Telltale, the game I mentioned earlier, uh, they went out of, that company went out of business in its own bankruptcy. We swooped in and picked up those rights, finished the game, and we're now the publisher of record. Uh, but we also now publish other games as well. We had a great game come out called Before Your Eyes. Um, that was a really sort of a moving and emotional game. Uh, that won a BAFTA. So we're doing more of that. Uh, we also now have bought some development capacity. So we're able to sort of do the full stack in the game space. We do tabletop stuff. Um, so it really has been for us about really expanding the reach and filling in the Wheel of Awesome so that we can better service uh, our creators directly. The other piece to it is we're really building up that audience component where we can make things directly for the audience that the audience is telling us that they want. So we can really be in direct dialogue and communication with the audience. That is a real uh, focus for us. It's been a, a bedrock principle since the founding of the company. We've been trying to figure out how do we get there um, as aggressively as possible. What do you mean by there? The audience funding the content? Partnership with the audience, right? So whether it's whether it's funding, so like we have a huge, hugely successful Kickstarter business where we've launched uh, tabletop games and books and comics all sorts of different uh, merchandise items. Um, so it could be more like that, uh, or it could just be like greater communication between us and the audience to say, hey, you love this comic. What is it you want to see being done with it? Uh, and then figuring out then how we can use that information to sort of make a more informed pitch when we go into places like streamers to say, hey, look, not only are we coming uh, with this information or this IP, but we're coming with this information about this audience space will come uh, we'll come to the table to do this. And then, so thinking about ways in which we can sort of increase that frequency of communication that doesn't feel uh, spammy, that feels much more sort of like they're participating uh, in this sort of, you know, the creation of this franchise. 
When I hear you talk about this, it reminds me a bit of some experimentation we're seeing in the TV industry right now. I think about Fox, for instance, where through Web3 and NFTs, they're kind of selling this notion of, hey, you, the audience, can own a portion of this show, finance this show. Are you starting to think along those lines? I mean, you know, I'm, I've, I've heard a lot of those things, and I think that the current thinking there is probably just early. I think that there's more meaningful participations and ways to go, right? Like, um, you know, I've seen this where if you back something on Kickstarter, you're much more likely not only to actually finish reading or playing or consuming the thing that you get, but you're also much more likely to sort of go out there and talk about it to your friends and sort of proselytize on behalf of it. And that's the best type of marketing, right? So people talk a lot about uh, micro-influencers or um, micro-proselytizers. And I think, okay, yeah, that's a viable approach and strategy. But like for me, so if one of my friends who I, whose taste I like, if they tell me to read something, watch something, or listen to something, I'm much more likely to do it. But how do you get those people activated and interested? And how do you get their, how do you get their opinions early, right? So we have enough, these big IP that people are coming into our ecosystems, I'd like to find out from them what are they looking for next and be in that, that dialogue so they feel invested from ground zero. So investment can just be, it could be time spent, it could be conversations, it could be financial. We're open to any, any and all of those iterations. I don't think that there's a silver bullet to, to solve for there. Well, you know, you mentioned Kickstarter. Is there other ways to approach like a crowd equity raise for the company overall or for a particular project? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're actually looking to do to do something like that we've we filed um, with the SEC uh, to sort of do a sort of crowd equity raise. And so we're in that process now. Um, we're waiting for approval to go live. Uh, we partner with a company called Republic. We'll be having sort of a um, an opportunity to sort of bring more people uh, into the company so they can feel like partners. But that's not going to be the only way in which we uh, let people participate. Of course, it's a hugely meaningful one, but there's obviously, you know, there's a lot of people that are giant fans that don't have the financial resources to invest. And we want to make sure that we're servicing all our fans in whatever way that they want to be, be serviced. That's really interesting. I mean, is that going to, is that kind of crowd equity raise going to be focused on a particular piece of IP or just the company in general? The company in general, you know, we went through those, uh, the, we went through our A and B rounds where we did sort of, you know, more traditional, you know, venture and strategic investment. Um, but for us, the goal is to partner with our fans uh, on, on the IP. So we want to say, hey, look, like, let's partner with our fans. Like, let's actually do that so they can have a meaningful voice in the direction of the company's going in. Does that presume... Because frankly, I, I didn't think of Skybound as a brand, something that audience knows. But if you're taking this approach, obviously I'm wrong. Well, you know, uh, there's a debate, right, whether we're a branded house or a house of brands, right? Like that's a an ongoing struggle or ongoing conversation. And, you know, for us, I, I think we're both, right? I think, you know, obviously we're the house that brought you uh, Walking Dead, we're the house that brought you Invincible and Impact Winter. But I think that, you know, we're not necessarily creating the MCU here, but we do I think have their thematic through lines that make sense that you're like, oh, I, I like what they're doing. And we've heard from a lot of our fans, if you like Walking Dead, you like Invincible, you like Impact Winter, there's a lot of connectivity 
uh, amongst those, those fan bases and a lot of overlap. So people, I think, more so recently are starting to, to see that. And ultimately, I think, you know, I think, Andy, if you look at it, right, um, I don't know that people that watch Walking Dead on TV think of themselves as AMC fans, right? And certainly when we launched in the era of Mad Men and Breaking Bad, I'm not sure there was a ton of synergy between all three of those shows, although there certainly were plenty of people who did watch it, but I don't think one was driving the viewership uh, of the other. And I think that people who come to Skybound and see what we're doing tend to stay inside of our ecosystem. And so we're trying to sort of build out that audience in a much more uh, connected way. When I think about sources of capital for the company, I also think about the fact that in the past few years, it's like every production company in Hollywood is getting their tires kicked by investors of some kind. I think the fact that OTT has expanded the demand for content has made you know, everything from Hello Sunshine to uh, LeBron James's Spring Hill Company uh, available either for the taking or for a, a big investment, surely you're getting approached because you guys would, would fit right into that model. So is that something you're thinking about? I mean, you know, yes, we've been approached for, I don't know, we've been approached multiple times a year for the last eight to 10 years, right? So uh, I'd be lying if I said we haven't been approached. It's not our preferred outcome. Um, there's certain of those buyers out there that I think really get the space. And there's a lot of them out there that are just uh, financial folks uh, that don't necessarily understand what we're trying to build. We would much rather partner with our fans um, and sort of be in a dialogue where uh, the creative is really driving the conversation much more so than sort of being completely uh, bottom line oriented. I see what's happening, you know, at Warner Brothers Discovery when you have you're, you're completely beholden to uh, a PL and balance sheet that's you know making it really difficult to sort of run you know one of the greatest creative companies there's ever been you know with HBO and I look at sort of some of those decisions that are going on there and it's really really tough and I feel like that's you can be overly financially engineered and I worry about uh, those potential outcomes so that's why for us if we can actually partner with our consumers right if our fans consumers can be our partners. I think that really changes the nature and direction of the company. And I don't think anybody has done that historically. And again, it's part of us where we're not, even though TV is a giant part of our business and video games are a giant part of our business, I really believe that the focus of what we do is connect the creatives with their fans. And we can be that place. I think that's, it opens up a tremendous alley for us. Another manifestation of the streaming age is the in the deals that get done between companies like yourselves and streaming services, we're seeing obviously the popularity of the cost plus model, where you're not necessarily able to hold on to any back end because the Netflixes of the world will sort of buy that out from the outset. How do you feel about that? Because that is becoming a very controversial subject. It seems like there's a real backlash in the production community. Well, I think I think it's a problem when you have um, when you're a content creator and your financial incentives aren't the same as the person that's distributing your show, right? So historically, putting aside whatever controversies there might be about networks and their creators, both networks and creators wanted as many people to watch their shows as possible for the longest possible period of time, right? So. There might be arguments over shows canceled too soon, too late, right? Like, you know, uh, someone spent too much, too little, right? There's 
all those fights that we had witnessed for, you know, that made up the, the uh, made up all the journalism for decades and, you know, at, at Variety. But ultimately, CBS, they wanted people to watch their shows and they wanted people to watch their shows for every week and watch it for year after year after year after year. I don't feel the same right now uh, with that, uh, with a lot of the streamers, because I think they're much more interested in people connecting and paying a fee and, and forgetting about it. Right. So um, you look at something like HBO, which is highly correlated, uh, or at least historically had been highly correlated around certain shows coming out. So you can say there's certain people that would subscribe and then forget it. And there are certain people that would tune in for Game of Thrones or uh, they would tune in for uh, White Lotus or whatever it is, and they would subscribe and then unsubscribe. But you were really sort of tightly correlated around the performance of a couple hit shows. Um, you know, I, I think you look at Netflix, and I mean, there's so much going on, right? And there's so many shows that get canceled after a couple of seasons because that's when the seasons, the, that talent start asking for more money, they're able to renegotiate, and that's when it gets more expensive. There's no additional revenue that comes to Netflix. If you're there for, for Dahmer and you, you in Dahmer season two, it gets more expensive. There's no additional revenue to the person already watching that show, right? There's, that person's already locked in, whereas... Historically, with an advertising model, you were able to drive more revenue if you said, hey, look, we have Seinfeld. It's getting the biggest possible audience in the world. We can actually make more money on it now. So it's okay for the cost to increase. And I feel like that, that disconnect is ultimately the problem, is that uh, as a platform, the big streamers are commoditizing producers. And I'll tell you this, as an artist, I didn't get into this business to make a piece of content, right? I got into make stories that matter. Right, I got into make movies and TV shows and books. Think uh, stories that matter. I'm not a piece of content guy, and being reduced to a tile uh, can feel really sort of diminutive. So yes, uh, it is a hot button, the hot button topic in the creative community. I also want to know, you know, now that you've sort of made the transition from. Uh, you were, you know, had a show at AMC, a number of shows at AMC. Now you're in, in with Amazon. Would you still do? linear old school television is that you know you're still open to to parking a show there yeah i mean look i think linear television the thing about it linear as long as there's a uh, a streaming behind it right i actually think that there is something the other thing i hate is releasing all the episodes at once i, I hate it you lose the opportunity to have the cultural conversation so our our big conversation and amazon was a great partner here was we said, look, we don't want to go all at once on, on Invincible. So they let us do, put out the first three and then they went weekly. And it changed the nature because we were able to sort of build this audience. People started talking about it. People that normally wouldn't watch the show were like, oh, I got to watch it. I need to catch up to be in there. So we were able to sort of create these cultural moments. Like, look, I love Game of Thrones. If the Red Wedding had been binged, I don't think it would have been that giant cultural moment um, that it was because you wouldn't know uh, where people are, right? So I feel like, yes, I think it's incredibly, I'm, I'm, I'm totally supportive of linear as long as there's an opportunity to binge and catch up. Well, alternatively, uh, the way you just answered that question, I wonder, would you ever do a deal with Netflix where the orthodoxy on the binge is pretty strong? You know, look, I would never say never. And I've done, I've, I've worked there and they do some things that are really amazingly well, but I, I don't think it's the best. I don't think that that's in the best interest of the creatives. I think that's 
I, I, I would argue, I don't even think it's in their own best interest, but you know, they certainly know for, for themselves. So what's next for Skybound? Is there, you know, you've mentioned Invincible, you've mentioned Impact Winter. Are, are there other pieces IP? Because I know you've got like 200 different pieces of IP within the Skybound empire. What's next do you think we should keep an eye on coming up the pipeline? Yeah, so um, we have a bunch of things. So uh, Invincible uh, season two and three is in production right now. We'll be coming out, we'll be announcing a release date shortly. Um, but we're very excited about where, what's going on in the Invincible universe. Um, we have a show that we're starting in South Africa. That's going to be uh, the first show that we're we're funding, that we're the studio on, that we're doing as a partnership with uh, with Freebie in the U.S., Netflix Africa, um, and Sony for distribution. So, but that'll be our first show there. It's a uh, really really cool sort of uh, YA spy thriller. Um, we're doing a show uh, up in Canada called Psychops, which is another animated show that's. Um, sort of, you know, uh, <laughs> X-Files meets South Park, uh, which we're really excited about. It's really fun, really sort of uh, cool cutting edge. So these great young creators we're working with. Um, so those are some of the things we're having. And then we have a few other shows that should be premium next year as well. Um, and then one of the biggest things we have is we have something called the Callisto, uh, the Callisto Project, the Callisto Protocol, which is a video game that we're doing in conjunction with Striking Distance and Crafton uh, that comes out in about three weeks. That's just a gigantic, beautiful uh, sci-fi horror game that's just uh, honestly next level. And the, the fan reaction so far has been uh, pretty through the roof. So, um, I mean, there's just a ton going on, um, you know, right now at Skybound. And uh, I, I really feel like it's never been a better time to, to be working at Skybound. Well, it sounds like you got a lot brewing there, David. Thanks for taking the time to walk us through all things Skybound. Awesome. Thank you. This has been another episode of Strictly Business. Tune in next week for another helping of scintillating conversation with media movers and shakers. And please make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear future episodes. Also, leave a review in Apple Podcasts and let us know how we're doing. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event. So give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view. An endless field of wildflowers or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. Hey everyone, this is Molly and Matt, and we're the hosts of Grown Up Stuff How to Adult, a podcast from Ruby Studio and iHeart Podcasts. It's a show dedicated to helping you figure out the trickiest parts of adulting. Like how to start planning for retirement, creating a healthy skincare routine, understanding when and how much to tip someone, and so much more. Let's learn about all of it and then some. Listen to Grown Up Stuff How to Adult on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Grown Up Stuff. Grown Up Stuff.